obviously once the story knows it's made up it can just do whatever it wants and um and sort of have a, a mischievous wiggle to it i'm michael tamblin ceo of racton kobo we make e-readers and apps, and we sell e-books and audiobooks all over the world, and we do it because we love reading ourselves, and we want to make reading lives better. One of the best parts of the work that we do is that we get to talk with authors about their books, as well as the books that shaped them, both as writers and as readers. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Helen Oyeyemi, author of the new novel, Pieces. And anyone who's ever read her books will not be surprised to learn that the title Pieces is not a synonym for parts, but the plural of peace, as in a state of non-conflict. So if right now you're feeling a touch off balance, that's probably perfect for the books that we're about to talk about. That's a feeling that readers encounter in much of our guests' writing, which has been called bewitching, having the quality of fairy tales, whether she's telling a short story rooted in folk traditions or tapping into her own singular imagination. Pieces is the story of a honeymoon that isn't technically a honeymoon, aboard a train called the Lucky Day, which is unlike any other train, where mysteries pile up and signs are misread figuratively and literally, and the only certainty is the love that binds our protagonist couple, Otto and Xavier. Helen Oyeyemi, welcome to Kobo. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that introduction. I might have to steal it when trying to explain my book to others. I, I could just accompany you around and you know explain it beforehand if that's if that's helpful. Okay. Like a herald. <laughs> okay. Let's go back to the very beginning of your time as a reader. What was the first book that you remember drawing you in? The first book where you felt like you lost yourself in the story. I don't remember the very first book, but I do remember the first book that outraged me enough to really jump in and try and change the story. And that was Little Women, because I still have a lot of feelings about it. Um, it's, it's Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. And, you know, it's the story of sisters growing up together, um, conflicting personalities, different dreams, but all supporting each other in their dreams and like all of that wonderful stuff. and. You know, it's it's very engrossing, very engaging to the extent that you are co-writing it. And there are a couple of points where I felt Louisa May Alcott really went wrong. Um, <laughs> one of them was having Beth. I, I thought that was a big, it was a big problem. It actually still really, really hurts me. Like I, I read it maybe once a year now, like not as many times as I used to. It used to be twice or three times a year just to see if it still hurts. And it really does. Like I just don't understand why she had to do that and it felt very personal as if Louisa Mailcott was coming for me like she was personally attacking me by killing Beth and then the other thing was that um Joe and Laurie didn't get married I thought that they were perfectly matched like why did this professor have to come in and and marry Joe I didn't really understand that either and I remember reading Little Men and like all the books that came after hoping that like something was going to happen that would reverse this terrible situation and since it didn't um I went into the book and I would just like cross out segments and just like write over them like no this is what actually happened and since it was a library book everyone was furious they were like what have you done <laughs> and I was like I made the book better like I improved it so you're welcome kind of <laughs> attitude that was very um 
very beginning of of my um involvement in writing I guess like once you feel like you can change the story then you start making your own stories but um I guess it just means that for me it's always been writing has always been a response to what I've read and so with Little Women it was that intervention into the story and um co-creating it and um in my opinion making it better and was was that impulse to rewrite stories that either impacted you or that you thought went in the wrong direction did that continue after little women or was that a was that a one-time experience i think that all of the the subsequent stories which i had learned not to um write inside the actual book but i took onto paper and um it was I, I guess we could call it fan fiction it was based on um the kind of books i was reading so i really loved um I don't feel like nobody really talks about this book anymore. Anastasia Krapnik was a series of books about a very um, smart New York teenager and Harriet the Spy and Rebecca Sunnybrook Farm and just um, all sorts of stories that involved resourceful young girls making their way in the world. And um, I also loved stories about people learning how to do things. So like ballet school, um, going to ballet school or to ride horses but just something about the process and um, the inevitable setbacks and overcoming them and like the back and forth of it um, was very interesting. So I would re- so I would write versions of the stories that I was reading um, until at some point I started writing things that were just mine. So this is this is a fascinating thing that that I think has come up in the last three or four authors of fiction that we've talked to where this this idea of rewriting existing stories, you know, either fan fiction or kind of proto fan fiction is is something that I think is way more common than than people thought that there is that one of the things that gets people comfortable with the idea of writing is I'm going to pick up the story and reshape it. I'm going to take it apart and put it back together again. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm just I'm interested in how often that's come up as a as an experience for people who uh, who write fiction. Um, I love I love thinking about the line between Emily Bronte and Fifty Shades of Grey, um, like the official story being that. Let's see how it goes. There was Wuthering Heights, and then there was Twilight, which was um, sort of fan fiction of Wuthering Heights, and then Fifty Shades of Grey, which was sort of fan fiction of Twilight. And I just, I just love that. I love the, um, the thought of Emily Bronte just like picking up Fifty Shades of Grey and being like, I am in some way responsible for this. Like, I just, I think it's glorious. And it could just be like this hall of mirrors that recedes infinitely, you yeah. know, derivation on derivation. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you were someone who always felt like you had stories inside you that needed to get out. You weren't someone who just took stories in. You were, it doesn't sound like you've ever been a passive reader. Um, I actually don't think that any reader is passive. And it's something that I like to make a nod towards when I'm writing to just kind of like leave the space for the reader to like do their own thing or wander off in their own direction. Um, create their own meanings because I think that that is that is essentially what we all do the writing is just a sort of um yeah it's going a step <laughs> a step further than the creative reading but reading is essentially creative and it is an activity and I think that's why I get so cranky when interrupted when reading it's like I am actually doing something I know you, I know you think I'm not I am <laughs> I am working here exactly yes you wrote your first book when you were quite young 15? 18, actually. 18, pardon me. 
if I can ask you to cast your mind back to that time, what was it that sparked that jump that now I'm going to I'm going to build this whole story from scratch? I think initially it started out as a sort of project, like but like a hobby project with um, a couple of other friends where I would write a chapter and then they would write the next chapter and then at a certain point um, the other friends were just like we <laughs> we can't follow we think this is your <laughs> this is your project and so it's being left alone with that and also not being daunted by left alone with that by being left alone with that because I think if I had started out thinking okay I'm going to write this this whole novel and um, I wouldn't have got anywhere but I think because I thought that I would be a co-writing it <laughs> and and be it wouldn't go on for very long um, it had a certain energy to it and then once I realized that I could sustain it then everything fell by the wayside all the homework and all, this, all the stuff that I was supposed to be doing. What were you thinking about in terms of being a writer then like you know what was as you're in the middle of it how are you seeing yourself in that process? I didn't know what I was getting into like I really <laughs> I really didn't know um it was being a writer was something that I always wanted to be but I thought later I think my original plan was to be a psychologist or something like that I, I wanted to like know a lot more about people before I um dared to try and write fiction I just had a lot a lot of ideas that I associated with being a writer and that being someone like much wiser and much more knowledgeable and much more everything than um, I was or even am. And I, th I guess if I had continued thinking that way, I would never have felt that I was ready to be a writer. So, so it's probably best that I sort of stumbled into it whilst daydreaming about something else. If you compare that sense of what you thought a writer would be then to the reality that you're now inhabiting how how far off were you <laughs> still i still do not know i mean ah, one of the things um that i was thinking about a lot when i was writing my, my book before this one gingerbread was the sense of being a lot older but in no way wiser in fact maybe even regressing in terms of wisdom and uh, <laughs> The one thing that I do think um, has come on in terms of my sense of being a writer is that um, I know a lot more about my field. I know a lot more about fiction, about how it is, um, how it is created, but not in a way that I think I was slightly worried about losing the, the spark of it or the mystery of it. Um, the more the more closely I got acquainted with like craft the crafting of sentences and going chapter by chapter but it's still it's still entirely mysterious to me and I'm happy about that um I just know more about um the technical elements of it which I think is very very important just being immersed in um in one's tradition like building up one's own canon and like what sort of writing you want to be moving towards and and your own sense of progression um, so that was kind of unexpected, the sense of learning on the job. You have described yourself, if I paraphrase this right, as a reader who writes rather than a writer who reads. Is that is that an accurate description? Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's true. I write reluctantly. <laughs> <laughs>
when you when you look across your ever-growing collection of books, are there ideas or themes that you find you keep coming back to? Are there are there things that you found yourself exploring in more than one book or can't get away from? Mm, I think I've resigned myself to digressions. I make a lot of digressions. Um, and that's just a natural part of the story. It becomes a maze. And then also the story always seems to know that it's a story and I've never successfully managed to um, persuade the story otherwise or let it forget <laughs> that, that, it's, that it has been constructed. And, um, and recently I'm just taking advantage of that because obviously once the story knows it's made up, it can just do whatever it wants and, um, and sort of have a, a mischievous wiggle to it. Um, <laughs> So I think before where I, where I might have been quite tortured about that and I was kind of like, come on story, you have to persuade people that you are the truth and that you are real um, and the story will never obey that. And so I just kind of let it have its head and go along with that. As a reluctant writer, did that make the process easier? It did. It made it so much more fun. It meant that I could apply um, the controlling element to the actual sentence level and think a lot more about the writing itself and yeah atmosphere and all the rest of it can just be what the book wants to be in your latest book pieces take a moment and introduce us to otto and xavier shin and their mongoose companion arpad <laughs> um otto and Xavier, this slightly unlikely couple, um, they but they have very sharply contrasting outlooks on life. Have somehow managed to find each other and to like agree that they want to be together, and so they're going on this trip, and it's all very exciting. And they have this warrior companion called Arpad, who has been a sort of inherited protector of Otto's family for generations back, um, and they get a ticket to go on the train and it's a sort of one way. Well, no, it's not one way. Actually, that's the that's the interesting thing about the situation in that they know where they're departing from and they know what, what they're returning to. But they just have, when they get back, if you ask them where they had been on honeymoon, they would not be able to tell you. But, and that was very interesting to me, the sense of being able to go on a trip. But isn't that all of our train journeys, especially like we just don't know where we've been, we passed through so many stations that are actually part of the journey, but we wouldn't be able to tell you what they were. And so that kind of like blurry companionship is, um, was very interesting to me. And also I think a honeymoon type trip is one of the few trips where you can get away with not really knowing where you are or, or, or where you've been because it's all about who you're with. Um, they were so in love and I was writing at a time when I was very, very cranky and I thought, well, I'm doomed to be alone forever and all of this stuff. I always send this couple off on a honeymoon and they would have this disastrous honeymoon and I'd be like ha 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 see it's better to be single or whatever but actually it didn't it didn't work out like that the story went in its own way um so you have Otto who's a hypnotist this was my very <laughs> I'm looking back to, to who they are Otto is a hypnotist but he's not a very good hypnotist um he I think he just likes to observe people and their own suggestibility he wants to see what people can and will believe and um, in some way chase along behind that and then you have Xavier who is a ghostwriter so he's much more interested in what 
he can get away with saying and <laughs> and what he can say in somebody else's voice and so he's so in both in in a, in a certain way they're both observers of people and like nuances of people and the things that they express and they communicate and they get aboard this train and they um meet someone that makes them feel that they can rescue her or that they can be sort of knights in shining shining armor in some way they, there's a situation that they feel that they can assert themselves into but it's completely they have completely the wrong idea about what's going on on that train and that's <laughs> that's where it's about a train story is a very particular kind of set piece the whole thing is in motion we have characters who have been placed literally in little boxes the story is kind of the length of the journey was was that a it's hard to call it a genre, but it's a, you know, there's sort of, is was that a scenario that you wanted to play with? I do think that there's something about a train book that immediately makes you think of a mystery. Um, you have the, you have the classic Agatha Christie styles that you have strangers on a train. You have, if not mystery, then a kind of palpable tension between whoever is traveling on that train at that moment it's kind of like an encapsulation of time and you have people thrown together like and all all of the relationships are defined by the fact that they're heading towards the same destination and that was interesting too um so I wanted I definitely knew that it was going to be a sort of mystery it was and then it turned into I guess a metaphysical mystery where you have everyone gathered um, trying to work out not so much um, who the killer is or who has been killed, but um, there is someone that they have all committed a crime against. They have to figure out, A, what the crime is, <laughs> the crime even is, and B, who the person even is that they have committed this crime against. Um, so in that way, it went it went topsy-turvy, but I think it still counts as a train book mystery. Tell us about The Lucky Day. The tea smuggling train. Um, I, that, I felt very strongly that there needed to be a tea smuggling train because I read about the outrageous tea tax. I can't believe how much it's like 110% tax on tea. Um, no wonder people were just drunk all the time because they just, <laughs> so much cheaper than tea. Um, but luckily when the tax was rate, um, when the tax was lowered, things went back to the correct order. Um, so I wanted to have a tea smuggling train. The thought of something that was um, illicit in those days, but, would, but for now we'd be like, why would there be a tea smuggling train? Um, I liked that this kind of borderline between um, defunct and um, still on, on the edge of a caper, um, criminal, <laughs> a retired criminal train um, seemed fun. Is the train a character or a setting? I think it depends on who you ask. So I think for the owner of the train, and there is a segment where um, she gets very upset because somebody um, attacks her train in writing, that is, and so she feels like she has to say something about that. And then more of the story of the train and the tea smuggling ring <laughs> that finance the train emerges. I think for her, it's very much a character. Um, and this is Ava that I'm talking about. And also she's gone into a lot of debt this train um it's going over in a way it's as important to her as um ipad the mongoose is to otto it's a sort of companion it's something that ideas she's transferred a lot of ideas um 
about herself and her family history onto. It contains mysteries. It contains people who are mysteries. But Otto and Xavier seem surprisingly resilient to the steady stream of strangeness <laughs> that, that comes at them. Were, were you testing them? Like, were you just sort of throwing things at them to see what would happen? That's exactly it. I was. I was kind of like, oh, what are you two going to do now? <laughs> and they kept, and they just kept absorbing it. And also they just kept not being frightened. I think that I, I wanted at a certain point for it to turn thrillery and it was the characters just wouldn't. It's because if you're trying to run a movie and you're trying to get the characters to go and like examine the basement or something and they're just like, oh no, that's okay. I think I'll just like have a cup of tea or something. And you go like, I can't get these characters to go to the basement. They roll with a surprising number yeah. of things and then it's like, oh look, snacks. Like it's uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That was exactly it. And so you just, what can you do? What are Otto and Xavier going to learn over the course of this story? I think that they come out with a sense of, I think at the end, they're, they're kind of in shock. And they don't really, they're still processing the implications of what has happened to them. And they... It's a, it's just existentially, they, they're in a tenuous place. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very, very secure about, you know, themselves. They're like, we are a couple going on, <laughs> on honeymoon. That's like, la, la. And then I think from the moment of their first interaction with Ava, when there's like this, they're trying to decipher, decipher the difference between the word help and the word hello, then everything just goes kind of, topsy-turvy and they start to realize I guess that any contact that they have with another person has some element of danger to it in a way that they had not expected in any way shape or form especially a person like Ava but I think about that a lot for example if there's a group of people and they're all talking about somebody that they've never met before or or never had any encounter with before but they're very confident that that person exists I'm a little bit like, are you are you sure about that? And then similarly, like, why is everyone in a group who has encountered a person so sure that that person exists as well? Like, I'm kind of like, let's not all be so certain, <laughs> guys. <laughs> and what happens if there is one member of the group who has, like, a doubt? Then the fact itself becomes quite volatile and, like, moves around. And I think that that's what happens to Otto and Xavier. Like, they become, like, a volatile element because an element of doubt has crept in about their own existence. And so I'm kind of, part of me wonders how they're going to get on with that. But I think that because there are two of them, they will be okay. Can you tell me a bit about how a book comes together for you? You know, what that, what that process of, of creation looks like? Let's start with the basics. Like, how long does it take a book to come together for you? Um, it takes about nine months. <laughs> um, and I always have a title first. And I'm not sure why, but it's very, very important for me to know the name of what I'm writing. Um, so even if the title changes, to then I just kind of have title. And then of the nine months, I'd say that half of it, I write up to a certain point and then I take a break for like about a month. And sometimes 
when I look back at the books, I can see like the difference in texture, like between the first, the first round of writing and the second round. But sometimes it's just all of the piece, which is like with pieces, actually, it's, it was much smoother because even when I was not writing, I was sort of in the world of it. And so it just came straight back. So what happens in that month, in the month that you take off? What's what's going on then? Um, I do not read. <laughs> I watch a lot of films. I watch TV. It's kind of like stuffing stuffing my mind with some visual elements like I'll go to galleries I'll do almost anything except for engage with words like in a serious way it's a yeah it's a sort of cleanser or a a way of getting some breathing space and then yeah dive back in and so going back to the to the genesis of the book for a second the the idea or the seed of it what does that look like what's the first thing aside from the title Usually, usually my books are responses to other books. So in this case, um, there were two that I was really struck by. And I'll call it three. So um, the writer Zan Shui, she wrote Love in the New Millennium and um, The Last Lover. And there's something about relationships in her book. There's so... The way that she describes relationships between people, not even romantic relationships, she describes them as some kind of um, process that begins and like doesn't end when the people involved decide that the relationship has ended. It's as if it takes on a life of its own and puts out tendrils and like keeps trying to drag the two people back into um, correspondence with each other. Um, For example, in The Last Lover, when you have a father and a son and the father would say to anyone who asked that he's not close with his son, but the son is like, we are close. He doesn't know that we are. <laughs> and the father tries to escape into like this book or into a sort of world of books. And the son just follows him and, and, <laughs> and pursues him through the, the father would say he's alone, but clearly he's not because he's got the shadow of a son like stalking his every move. And um, it's a little bit like that in the new millennium as well. Just any, once a relationship has started, like human agency, has no involvement in um, in what happens next. The, the relationship just continues. So then I started thinking, what if you had a breakup story? Like, what if you broke up with someone and that person just quietly didn't accept your breakup for years and years, <laughs> and then came to show you the, the fruits of your breakup labor? And you know that was that, which is kind of what happens on the train with um, Martin Xavier. And then the other book that I had been reading um, was Olga Tokarczuk's Flights, and the way that she talks. So she writes so beautifully about moving across boundaries and um, the sort of physical, the link between physical and mental um, that happens as we cross boundaries. And at one point she mentions that traveling on a train is much more laborious than flying across boundary because you actually have to go where the train goes. You're like there, you're there with like every physical movement of the train in in quite a different way from when you're flying, when you're just sort of in the clouds um you're on the earth rumbling across the earth um so you know that combination of um thinking about what a journey really is and then linking it to the sense that we have especially in romantic journeys that um the destination is all that matters (laughs) and that you know now, now that we found the one is there some degree to which our exes no longer exist for us um and what happens if, as I said, the person who, who you broke up with did not accept that breakup? Um, you know, that, that all of that playing out on the train would just be really interesting, <laughs> I thought. 
some of your writing seems like a a challenge you set for yourself. You know, it's, I want to do this kind of story and now let's figure out how to do it. <laughs> is that, is, is that a fair encapsulation? It, it is. And um, <laughs> there is usually a point when I regret setting myself such a task. I was like, why did I have to this? Do this was a bad goal. <laughs> <laughs> right? You could have chosen something else. But then out of sheer perversity, I managed to complete it. <laughs> One characteristic of your work is this this sense of richness. Your your books aren't long and they aren't dense, but they are richly textured. Do you find yourself, as you're writing, reaching to add details, or are you constantly trying to distill things down and and kind of pull things out? Um, I'm constantly distilling. I mean, the thing that I find slightly depressing is that even with all of the digressions that I make and all of the textures and like everything that I'm adding like this is this is me at my most restrained <laughs> as a writer and so and I, I have so much envy when I read someone like Raymond Chandler or somebody who really just kind of like strips the sentence right down um, and the observations right down I, I would love to be able to write really starkly like that actually that might be a new task to try and set myself <laughs> Tell me about your writing day. Are there routines you follow? Do you have habits? Do you have superstitions? Um, I like to have a uniform. So with gingerbread, I wore a unicorn onesie. <laughs> but I would, I would wash it overnight and then just like in the morning jump into my unicorn onesie um, and feel just very... <laughs> <laughs> very strong somehow it was like armor um, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure how that how that came to be the case with pieces it was a white dress and red lipstick like it was a kind of like that was what I had to have going on before I started writing um, so I was cycling through white dresses and it kind of made me feel because you, you know there were all of these stories about Emily Dickinson and how she always wore a white house dress and like would drift around the house and I kind of started to think about the benefits of that and, re and realize that there's a again it's all everything that I do in terms of the uniform is to do with strength but just like the strength of the white dress was hmm, especially the floaty white dress it was like a severity as well the dress itself is could be read as austere but the the red lipstick has a certain powerful celebratory quality to it so uh that's much less you know emily dickinson that's true <laughs> i i read somewhere that you are an occasional user of the computer application write or die yes it was when i was writing um voice my bird i was really i was really experiencing the reluctance to write more than ever before and, and write or die was the only thing that helped me to complete that it was just that terror so you have this app where you if you don't type, well, you can set the intervals, but for me, I think it was 30 seconds. If there's like a 30 second gap between <laughs> between what you're writing, if you pause for 30 seconds, it starts deleting words and you're just kind of like watching your words go. <laughs> and these are these are not words that that are replicated anywhere else. Like these are your words for the day. And so then you just gallop, you gallop terror and <laughs> and, and you edit later and, just for sheer material, um, it's actually quite brilliant. But I just don't have the 
yeah, I, I don't have the gumption for that. Anymore. The emotional wherewithal to just manage the strain. <laughs> <laughs> but then also there's something kind of, there's a sort of mad glee that you can feel when you can just like watch all of the words going. <laughs> Maybe it's like Nero burning down Rome, you're like, ah! <laughs> I'm interested in your relationship with your editor. Uh, it, it's it's kind of impossible to imagine these books as anything other than these perfectly finished objects, but how much do they change from first draft to final? And what is that back and forth like? I am really, really lucky to work with superb editors. I think that when the book first comes in, um, it's usually very ragged. <laughs> and what the, what the editor does, especially um, Sarah McGrath, my, my editor at Riverhead is just, it's as if she has some kind of x-ray vision where she just looks at the paragraph and she can see the inessential. She's like, why is this here? And then just asks very, very pointed questions <laughs> about what about what is going on in the text and what, what I want to say, um, which is very important as well. And so then in answering those questions, um, it's not a simple chop. It's, it's not just that you're like, mm -hmm. oh, that's that's inessential, and so it's gonna go. It's it's where can it's it's like with the Zanjwein putting out tendrils. It's like what what is the other, what is the alternative? Like what is there an inverse here that is actually more important? Like is it like looking at a negative in fact, and and now you can see what the actual picture is. And it's such a close reading, and it's such an intent reading that um, you just respond to that with, I think, finer and much more intentional writing. Like, it's just very, mm -hmm. it's a very good balance. How has your experience of the pandemic been? I am an introvert. Um, and also, I live in Prague for reasons that are not to do with people. And I don't live in Prague to be social. So it's kind of not been that much difference like no court um in the way that my life is going except the if anything i feel like things got too social but like zoom social so that would be my only <laughs> that would be my only complaint that i was that i was having to like show my face more <laughs> online and and in communications with people um but otherwise i've just been i've been reading i've been writing i've been watching like korean tv dramas pushing around, getting fresh air. Um, it's, there is an effect of limbo, but I, that sort of brain fog that I associate specifically with this time where you just stare into space and, and if someone asks you what you're thinking, you wouldn't be able to answer. Um, so there is that, and I do, I do find that ominous, but aside from that, I don't feel that much impacted. I mean, I've been reading about, I've been reading about the general impact and I've, I feel dreadful about it, but personally, not so much. How about you? Well, it's it's been interesting as we, as I've been speaking with different people who are writers through this process because it seems like there are almost two reactions and not and not a lot of gray in the middle. Either it's been a time of intense productivity and people have been able to focus and new work is getting written, or it is a time of 
infinite distraction, hard to, you know, hard to hold focus, hard to get a story out, hard to kind of, you know, either commit to the writing or commit to like the stuff that's coming out in the writing process. So how, how has that been for you? Is that something, has it been a productive time from that perspective? I asked how the pandemic how the pandemic has been for you, and you told me how it's been for other people. Is this your <laughs> like what is this? <laughs> You've moved around a lot: New York, Paris, Budapest, Berlin. Now settled most recently in Prague. I've just I've been looking for a place where I can, where I feel. I can dream or imagine just very as freely as possible. And I actually first came to Prague in 2010. And then I left after six months because I loved it so much. I loved it so much. And I found it very strange that I loved it because before I came, I'd never heard of um, the Czech Republic or like thought much about it and then came and loved it and just seemed, I thought, is this false? And then I talked to a friend and he said that I should date other cities. And so that was why I tried Berlin and Budapest and all of the others. But then I missed Prague so much that I came back in 2013. And so it's been Prague since 2013. I'm like a, I'm a local now. And I, I know, I don't, I don't think I would have been able to imagine that um, for a long time. But that's how it is. Have the different cities inflected your writing? Do they sneak in at the edges or in the texture? Prague is coming in, Prague is coming in, but I think for the other places, not so much. I know there seems to be some separation between um, my personal kind of mental landscape and then what comes out as a writer. Um, but my personal mental landscape has definitely been enriched, especially by Budapest, which I found fascinating. I think it's in some ways, uh, counterpart of Prague like maybe a cousin or, or an even closer relative where it is gloomy Prague just kind of laughs and they both have actually had pretty grim histories but it's about the it's about how that is carried and how that is um displayed I mean one thing that I loved about about Budapest was the kind of clinging on to like the bloody past so they'd be like if you're in a museum, they'd be like the person was stabbed with the sword and here is the sword, here is the very sword. And it was kind of like elevated. Um, whereas Prague is more, there are no heroes. And I think in, in the Czech Republic in general as well, there's, there's no heroes, but there's a real solid appreciation for losers. Like it's very like the loser can be king. Mm. Um, almost as if it's more noble to try to go up and something not win and to be the winner. Um, I think that's, that that sort of jives with something in my own consciousness or in my own worldview. And, and that was unexpected actually. Speaking of winners and losers, you have won literary prizes. You've been a finalist for several more. You And you've been a juror more than a few times as well. The Giller Prize in Canada, I think most recently the Man Booker Prize in 2018. It was the Booker International. Yes, yes. How how have those two experiences informed each other? Oh, I learned from judging that I can never win a major prize. 
like even like it's it's how you understand you understand your own writing and like what's going and, and how judge, judging panels go and you're like oh <laughs> and it's it was it's liberating in that sense <laughs> because then you know that you're not writing the major phrases um it's all to do with the the interplay of personalities um with with judging but also and and so it makes being a recipient that bit more mysterious because you're like how did I how did this come through that process like <laughs> um, it's also so mysterious but it also I think it's good I think it's good to judge prices if you're a writer because it reduces your anxiety because you realize that actually there are so many factors that go into it and it's not it doesn't just come down to this book is good this book is less good like which is what I think I had thought before before I had been, been a judge and you keep saying yes when asked. So because I love free books, <laughs> I, love, I love them so much. Especially free books that are really, really good because it's like it's pre, it's pre printed, mm-hmm. right? Right. So you're reading the year in amazing books, and I mean, who's going to say no to that? <laughs> completely understand (laughs) that's essentially why we're all in this business is the free book side Mm -hmm. of it you know everything else falls to the side it's the best (laughs) in an interview in 2007 you talked about going to study in new york to get your master's as a backup plan so that you could teach in case the wellsprings ever dried up it's uh, mm-hmm. it's fifteen years later. How are the uh, how are the wellsprings doing? Fifteen years later, I, I look back on having dropped out after one semester. I'm such a quitter. Like I'm such a quitter. I dropped out after one semester at Columbia. I don't know why. What made me think that I could? I don't know what made me think that I could even study the MFA because my mind is so crooked. Like this was the whole problem. It was kind of you're at one of the best universities in the world. You have excellent instruction, but you just can't take in what you're being taught. So like what I can say. And then to go from there to feel that I had the authority to tell other people how to write is just <laughs> couldn't, it couldn't work. So it was not a very good backup plan. Um, so now I just have to accept not having a backup plan and somehow keeping going. I mean, I, I, I return somewhat to this reluctance to write and I do want to stop, but it's actually that I cannot stop. So it's more a case of writing because it seems pathologically compelled or something. <laughs> than, than, and I'm, I'm now trying to enjoy this, this sense of being pathologically compelled. Um, so I'm just gonna have to keep going. Seven books in, the uh, the compulsion seems to be working out fairly well, and uh, yeah. and certainly with this most recent book, we get the benefit of it. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michael. I've been speaking with Helen Oyeyemi, author of the new novel Pieces and many other incredible works of fiction. You can find Pieces and the other books we've talked about, along with previous episodes of the show, at kobo.com slash conversation, or you can check the show notes. Make sure to check every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen, and leave us a review, because it helps other readers find us. 
Cobone Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.